Exciting installment of the fifth column podcast. This is your almost weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle, the people that make it, and occasionally ourselves. And I did say almost. And in this particular week, it ought to be two in one week, but mostly because the last one was delayed. I'm Camille Foster. I do things at a place called Freethink. Um, this is episode 72 recorded on, I don't know what day it is, but this is an Adderall and coffee edition because we are here early in the morning. And by we, I mean uh, Matt Welch, editor-at-large Reason Magazine, and uh, one Michael Moynihan, national correspondent for HBO's Vice News Tonight, gentleman of the world, um, inside of uh, inside of the studio with us uh, after his, his journey abroad. Yeah. Well, let's think of how yeah. many things Moynihan yeah. has done since the last time he's been in this room. Yeah. Oh my God. Before we do that, I want to I want to try something before we before we do it. Before right. we do it. Also at the controls is our good friend Anthony Fisher. Nice. And I want to say good friend out front because I'm planning to assault him verbally later on in this program mm-hmm. um, and denigrate him. And it, I, I look forward to doing this. So I, uh, I just wanted to acknowledge him up front. Yeah. He regularly contributes to many publications. Uh, a, a, a very accomplished uh, journalist and thoughtful person. Filmmaker. Filmmaker. Uh, father of three, three beautiful young ladies. Um, but those are the last nice things I'm going to say about his ass today. Yes. And, uh, and you all can tweet at us about who won. <laughs> it's not a competition <laughs> because you've already lost. Boom. Um, Got to hear both sides. <laughs> <laughs> both sides again. It's what about it? Starting already. Moynihan. Yeah. You were in uh, Russia. I you was. You've been to Washington, D.C. <clears throat> I was in Alaska, too. Was I? You were going to Alaska the yeah. last time you were here. Yeah, and then I went to San Francisco for a thing. I, yeah. Actually, that one aired. Um, I did something that aired because I'm doing some longer projects. And that one was the Cloudflare uh-huh. uh, interview with the guy from Cloudflare, which was really, really fun and interesting. I'm going to cut down to about four or five minutes. But we had about an hour talking about um, him wielding too much power on the Internet mm-hmm. and feeling bad about essentially taking the Daily Stormer uh, offline, not because of the content, because it's the Daily Stormer, but yeah. be- because he said, you know, no one man should have as much power. So we had a pretty good, wow. pretty good conversation Whoa, about that. That's a Kanye West lyric. Yeah, you know no. That. no one man should have all that power. Um, uh, I don't know this Kane person you're talking about. Um, <laughs> he's a wrestler. Uh, yeah. So then, I, yeah, so then I was, I've been in Russia, um, and and it was um, it was crazy. It was fascinating. So if you've been to San Francisco, Russia, and then you interviewed. Is I didn't it, interview. You didn't? No. <laughs> God damn it. I want to, is what yeah, I'm saying. Yeah, okay. Um, I don't like to talk about that. Okay. Um, uh, <laughs> what was the most? Well, I guess that ruins the setup. Uh, the, the setup was just, uh, was just. Uh, I mean, are, are you going to admit that you work now for the company? Uh, yeah. And that it's, uh, I mean, it's, part of, uh, it's part of Facebook's nefarious uh, plot to spend $100,000 worth of Russian advertising to. Yeah. Yeah, well, overturn American democracy. It's really funny that um, <laughs> talking to r- Russians um, that would you would ordinarily think would be sort of kind of sympathetic to to a non-Putinist worldview, and I, there were really few and far between. It was really hard to find people that uh, because I mean they basically found everything that was coming out of the U.S. to be so absurd that they were kind of de facto Putinist in a lot of ways. But it's a fascinating country which is celebrating the 100th anniversary next month, 
of the October Revolution. And you see the and the interesting thing about Russia now is that obviously the ideology has no parallels to, to Bolshevism. I mean, there's a like a 15 percent flat tax in Russia. And, you know, the, the best photo I took was this Valentino store, uh, mm. which is right by the by uh, the Kremlin. And it's this beautiful, you know, uh, edifice and these big, big windows and, you know, $5,000 dresses, $10,000 Yeah, I got dresses. some great shoes from there last summer. And, well, I would imagine this would be a place that you shop. And yeah. in between the windows, <laughs> a true story. there is a, um, probably dating from like 1930, a uh, Lenin uh, picture. Oh. Like a like a like a, a stone kind of carving of Lenin in the building of the Valentino, and which I thought was the most perfect. Great. I was like, we that's, want that's, that's like, beautiful. It's we like want the Lenin, statue. <laughs> Lenin statue in uh, Seattle, right? Didn't you? Yeah. You said there was a Marx statue, like and oh, the still closest the, building yeah, was yeah. Uh, was a Bentley. Dealer. It was a, ben, was a Bentley dealership. Which, yeah. In in a way, though, like, yeah. we won, but also a kleptocratic oligarchy yeah. that runs the whole place. They can afford to shop there forever. Yeah. They could yeah. buy everything yeah. 22 times. Yeah. I went to this conference um, and it looked like there's a lot of government people there mm -hmm. and it looked like I had pulled up into a Mercedes dealership. Wow. There were 48,000 black brand new Mercedes like in rows. And I'm like, God, that's Russia. And then go nice. a little bit outside of the country. And there's like a lot of Lada's still uh, like uh, trying to get its one stroke engine into gear. It's the only other <laughs> but, country besides Cuba where you can find Lada's. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of I saw a lot of great Lada's. But um, but no, it's it's a it's totally fascinating place. But but, you know, all of this, the ideology is gone. But what Putinism, of course, you know, uh, means these days is to celebrate a past that is ideologically very different than today. I mean, he's an old KGB man. We all know that. But, I mean, there is the glorification campaign of Stalin. There is the reintroduction of statues of people like, you know, uh, Felix Dzerzhinsky and like, you know, the people that started the Cheka. All this stuff is coming back. The, so the, the textbooks are becoming more not Sovietized ideologically, but looking at the past as a positive thing as opposed to something I mean, I imagine you just go straight to the, the empire element of it. Like, yeah. Russia kicked ass. Russia scared the world or like had influence in the world. Yeah. <clears throat> it had people in in a Warsaw pact. It had more territory than it did now. Mm -hmm. Those were great things. And yeah. Putinism has always been, I think, understood as uh, an expression of nationalist longing for those elements of the Soviet experiment, which in America we tend to over uh, because, you know, of our own stupid Marxist arguments, we tend to think of it's all about the underlying ideology without looking at the power politics stuff yeah. and how that was yeah. popular. And yeah. I just want to point out this your Marx statues and things like that called to mind a pointless anecdote that I can't help but share. Uh, <laughs> My wife and a, a few other uh, free, uh, freelance journalists when we were living in Budapest, Hungary, uh, started up a, a collective office that they uh, uh, called the uh, Budapest International Press Center. It was just you yeah, know a, a place that they could all show up to work so they wouldn't be lazy. Uh, and uh, the anchor tenant of it was our friend Adam Labor, author of many books. I think I've mentioned uh, him before in this program. But the, uh, the only main rule of the Budapest International Press Center is that you had to find a way in every single one of your articles to say, <laughs> and now Marx and Engels have been replaced by Marx and Spencer. Yeah, yeah pretty much. Yeah, that, that was what Marx and Spencer was created for, for the victory in the Cold War. And one of the most interesting things, by the way, about going there is um, the security aspect, the digital security aspect of it, is that, you know, uh, don't be on hotel Wi-Fi. Do not 
connect, uh, you know, to just data with your phone without a VPN on. Mm -hmm. There's no VPNs in Russia. Um, I mean, there are VPNs in Russia, but if they, you, they are outlawed. They are outlawed. Oh, um, I didn't, I so you can use a VPN, uh -huh. uh, which for those of you who don't know, is a virtual private network, which allows your internet traffic to be encrypted and, and tunneled uh, away from the prying eyes of the authorities. I'm glad he's like those of you who don't know, as yeah. opposed to for Matt. For Matt. Yeah, I, was, I was literally looking directly at Matt. I know all of you know what a VPN is. But so, yeah, like connecting to that, if you get it, you, you, you connect to the nearest one is Finland because uh -huh. you always connect to the one you know, closest geographically. Sure. There's none, none in Russia. Um, so that's a that's an interesting thing of like people telling you. Yeah. Um, there was a, a bunch of stories in the Sochi Olympics. Uh, that, you know, people at the press center, yeah. like, you know, logging on and filing copy and like being hacked within like three seconds yeah. and having malware infect their computers. And it, I mean, this, it can happen in New York. I've, I've been using um, to, to admit this to my neighbor who may, in fact, figure out who I am at some point and learn this. Um, I've been using their open Wi-Fi for the past what? week. Yeah. yeah. But I've also been using a, a VPN, VPN yeah. because I always do. And hey, stupid, this welcome to Tech Dudes on Sirius XM Radio. Um, <laughs> uh, we, um, you should not be using Wi Fi anywhere in public without a VPN in a place like New York that is highly problematic. I've, I've gone to, uh, I went to DEF CON in Vegas a couple mm -hmm. of years ago. And that was one of the most like daunting experiences of my life. They do that shit for sport. Like, you're using the, the, the internet, you are using a VPN. It seems like it ought to be an encrypted connection. Those kids can find you, own your shit, and they actually have a board um, up in the building where they will just post your material just for fun, just for shits and giggles uh, to prove that they can do it. Um, but uh, there's, there's other interesting stories related to that. Um, Moynihan, I'm delighted you're here. Um, yeah, I find thank you. your your journeys abroad and your stories about them uh, very interesting and compelling. There is the one thing that I didn't mention oh, that I think we talked do. about, and I posted it on Instagram, and you can look at it on my Instagram. I don't know my Instagram private, I think, but you can just I, add me. I'll just fucking huh. whatever. I don't know why it's private, um, <laughs> but I met a woman in a bar, huh. um, and uh, who came over because I was with a, a, a colleague. And wanted to speak English. And uh, she's decided to start speaking English with us. And, and she had a friend with her. And we were just talking. And it was it was fun. And and, uh, and she said, uh, she looked like kind of like punk rock. I don't know where this story and is going. No, no, no. I think I told you this. Didn't I tell you this? I know. And, uh, and she looked like kind of punk rock. I was like, you know, just like normal young person in Moscow. And she said, uh, you know, I, I like Trump. I don't like Putin. I like Trump. And I was like, you like Trump? And she's like, yes, I like Trump. And I was like, really? You like Trump? And she's like, yes. And I was like, are you like alt-right? And she's like, yes, pretty alt-right. And I was like, whoa. And then she said, this is, you can see this on Instagram, I swear to God. She's like, I have cake. Uh, and I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? You have a cake? What is this? The Great British Bake Off? What are you doing? So she goes over to the table where she, she came from, so brings a cake over. A cake that's tied in a box and it's going to tie it up a string. Cake. <laughs> and and it's tied up with a string. And she puts it on the table. And there's a photo of this on my Instagram. She unties the thing. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? She opens the cake up. It's a beautiful, huge white cake with Pepe the Frog. No, 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 no. I no, swear to God. No. Well, do you know? I swear to God, you, you can look at the evidence. I will know show it to you. Do you know what's so funny? Um, you've just demonstrated that you don't listen to the podcast when you're not here. No, fuck um, no. Because <laughs> why would I do that? Because we talked about this Pepe cake already. Oh, right? did you? <laughs> 
Oh, and we we were speculating. I just, I just we got were back speculating last about night the Pepe, about the Pepe cake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, but now we that have was, a story to actually explain the Pepe cake. It was literally a, an alt right Trump loving so young. It, you just happened to be there. Totally, and she this had a is Pepe cake. totally this is this is compromise. This is compromise. No, it, it was completely uh, accidental. This is the guy who goes to the damn picnic in the Hamptons and is outing um, Nazis. Nazi <laughs> Nazi grandfathers uh, it's incredible yeah, yeah. that's yeah. not it doesn't happen to me yeah oh that's right I, the nazi scientist yeah, yeah. You, you i think it's the name your exploit i think yeah. it's the name michael Moynihan. Like, oh yeah, you wrote Lords of Chaos. I'm like, actually, I didn't. Wait, who are you? Yeah, I did. I, yeah, I had to write, and in, in, if I've told this before, but I had to write a column one time that I am not that Michael Moynihan. I, had, I fucking wrote a column about it. I was like, because there was a Wikipedia entry, and there's two Wikipedias, and one says Michael Moynihan journalist, and it's that guy. Oh no! Who's written for like, you know, Blood and Honor Monthly or something, oh and he's God. the journalist, and, and I'm like, the parenthetical after me is like, you know, dickhead or something your disambiguation yeah my disambiguation is like you know this is good so anyway i don't know well there there are other things happening in the world today um there's uh storms ravaging the caribbean um and uh pounding parts of florida i guess as of right now are on their way in that direction so thoughts and prayers with those folks mean that sincerely i have very Mm -hmm. very a lot of friends um in the dominican republic um and in uh in florida naples and miami um we're not going to talk about that today. Um, we are, however, going to talk about a few other things that are happening. Betsy DeVos, Title IX. Um, there are some changes afoot uh, with respect to some guidance that was sent to colleges and universities during the Obama administration. Um, some guidance that basically expanded the way that Title IX is interpreted um, and insisted that the universities had a responsibility to get more involved, to take an active role, to to do particular things uh, with respect to allegations of rape um, or other sorts of sexual misconduct on college campuses. These are these are policies, guidelines that were obviously well-intentioned. They were in response to uh, what is reportedly uh, an epidemic of uh, sexual assault on college campuses. Um, I don't want to sort of do the 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 reality of that epidemic um, or questions about that reality because I know there's an active conversation about that. Um, I do think, however, that the response to DeVos making this change is super interesting, um, and hopefully, we'll also have time to to unpack a couple of related things: um, Trump uh, Trump's actions on DACA, the the new emerging relationship with Nancy Pelosi. But let's start with this uh, Title IX stuff. Um, and Fisher, I know you had been taking a look at some of the 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 headlines that were popping up uh, describing this at, at places like uh, HuffPo, et cetera. What what are some of the the most interesting descriptions uh, of this? Well, I mean, you got uh, at CBS News, DeVos says she'll rescind Obama's Title IX sexual assault guidelines. HuffPost gets a little scare quotey when they say Betsy DeVos says the Title IX system has, quote unquote, failed both survivors and the accused. So I think the uh, uh, implicit uh, suggestion is that bad, bad, bad Betsy DeVos. The uh, the I wouldn't say preponderance, but just a huge amount of reaction that I've seen in my Twitter feed to this thing uh, has, I think, been a great uh, uh, example of how people 
personalize their news through their own hate filters. <laughs> Betsy DeVos has become this hate figure um, for whatever reason. Uh, she's, you know, she's been a, a Republican backer for a long time. She's been in the school choice movement. Her brother is uh, some kind of moral monster, apparently named Eric Prince. I don't really know anything about, but wants private armies in Afghanistan or something like that. The family has been controversial among uh, the left for a long time, and she didn't apparently uh, uh, respond very well during her confirmation hearing to some stuff, but she has worked on education for a long time. But anyway, she was the one everyone decided to get mad at in that process. So people have a default Betsy DeVos sucks uh, filter here. I mean, they had vigils in my neighborhood about her at the at a local school. Um, and they, you know, uh, they have the uh, default Trump thing. So you have, I hate Betsy DeVos. I hate uh, Donald Trump. And this has to do with rape. There is just no way, apparently, for people to accept information that gets in the way of how their computer spits out those inputs, which is hashtag stop Betsy or our, our mutual friend, Noah Shackman, a very great guy and a discerning uh, journalist, tweeted something to the effect of like, what the fuck is wrong with these people? So, sometimes a discerning journalist. Uh, very often a discerning journalist, yeah. one, of, one of the better ones out there. Uh, this is uh, a... Uh, uh, a completely widespread reaction to something, uh, a, a due process claim. It's a it's a, a great example of how uh, you have to allow your brain to open up the idea that someone who you don't like might have a better take or a better position on something that you don't know a whole lot about. People have been uh, and by people, I mean uh, uh, non crazy hated right wing people uh, like over at Reason or the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education been pointing stuff out about this since 2011 when it first happened. This guidance from the Department of Education uh, to reinterpret Title IX in this way basically downgraded the way that uh, uh, campus sexual assault cases would be adjudicated to a preponderance of the evidence standard. Not just that, but also said that uh, you don't have uh, a normal right to uh, face your accuser in any way or uh, like know that you don't have a right necessarily of uh, having any kind of counsel. So you have these essentially kangaroo courts on campus deciding the fate of people. And sometimes this goes against the wishes of the people who are the alleged victims here. Um, we've written over at Reason. Robbie Suave has a couple of pieces uh, right now that I would commend people look at, uh, including here is every crazy Title IX rape case Betsy DeVos reference, plus a bunch more um, that we looked into. This has created so many injustices. So many people who've been cleared by the legal system mm -hmm. have nonetheless been kicked out of universities because of the way this has been done. So what she, Betsy DeVos, is proposing uh, and, uh, and, and enacting, I, I presume here is to stop this preponderance of the evidence standard and go back to treating uh, criminal cases through the criminal justice system as opposed to having the federal government tell universities how they must deal with a criminal justice issue or else they don't get their money. Right. Um, it's a due process question. And to see so many people immediately under immediately dismiss a due process objection is a reminder as Ken White uh, Popat said today we don't have a major party anymore that is consistently for either due process or sensible criminal justice reform this this move makes every bit of sense in the world the reaction to it mm -hmm. is it makes uh makes us realize that people can't be rational in the face of their <laughs> constant hatreds towards political figures Make, makes us realize or or affirms um <laughs> The, the 
the question about Popat, um, I wonder is uh, when, in fact, did we have a major party that was consistently in favor of due process? Uh, pro- yeah, that's, uh, that's it, I think that's it's the re-reminder, fair. you know. Yeah, yeah. The, the, just to reaffirm it. Um, you mentioned um, the downgrading from a preponderance of evidence. I suspect most of the people listening get that immediately. But by downgrade, you mean that if I'm getting anything wrong, uh, okay. come at me here. But I, I think that campus uh, authorities have the ability to determine to their own satisfaction, you know, outside of the criminal system, uh, whether uh, you have uh, you have someone who's involved in uh, in sexual assault cases. Uh, however, previously, their guidance was to go, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt or, right. or the usual uh, criminal justice kind of thresholds. What they were doing with this was just saying like, OK, uh, look, you know, let's let's err on the side of the accuser here and not have people go through the same kind of levels. And this was it. This was interpreted in ways that uh, affected all kinds of people who had nothing to do with any underlying uh, act of sex. I sure. mean, Laura Kipnis, uh, famously feminist professor, uh, had to go through all kinds of Title IX inquisitions as a result of this memo, uh, just simply for essays that she had written. I mean, there's just pure free speech uh, violations that are crazy that came as interpretations of this. And and I think DeVos also yesterday in her comments didn't only comment on the people who had been accused and who were not afforded due process as a result, but people who were in fact accusers who were victims of sexual assault who were forced under these guidelines by the universities themselves to participate in proceedings presided over by university officials with the victim in some cases being responsible for finding the evidence, finding witnesses to testify on her behalf, effectively building her own, I believe in this case, her own case in order to prove that she was a victim of sexual assault. Um, and to the extent that there are issues on on both sides, that phrase is that that is going to be the phrase of 2017. To the extent that there are issues on both sides, then the necessity of reform um, seems like something that's completely uh, appropriate in Trump's America, where it's very difficult for anyone to even pretend to see any action taken by the other side without it being the most deplorable thing imaginable. Like this is the worst possible reading of I'll, it. I'll Before you, I know anything about it, it's I'll the worst you, possible thing. I'll uh, give you a 60 second story on how I once was clouded and I'm sure I'm clouded on a daily basis uh, with this kind of thought. Um, on, a, on an issue that mattered. I used to have the kind of Ralph Nader, Jerry Brown, 92 uh, view towards campaign finance reform, that the reason why politics was no good is because all the money washing in the system. And that's why politicians vote in ways that I don't like. Um, I believed that strongly. And I also believed that the free speech objections to that were bullshit because they're being made by Mitch McConnell, who's a human turtle. <laughs> I let my hatred for Mitch McConnell, which has not abated over the years, um, uh, blind me to a free speech battle. And I, I'm someone who's always considered myself a free, a free speech sure. absolutist. And yet I didn't in this case. I'm like, oh, they're just using that argument. And you hear so much of that these days, like uh, about free speech and Nazis, about due process and rape on campus. They're just using these arguments because it's a, the available club for their nastiness. They want to side with rapists. <laughs> when you get that's, yourself, that's a, but that's a real position. When you get yourself there, you, yeah. you, you step back, step yeah. back, and and allow yourself to get uh, the, and the information. The other point I'm making as a way of lateraling over to Moynihan, perhaps, is that um, the modern college campus might not be the most well suited institution to adjudicate 
sexual assault disputes. Nor should they adjudicate murder or should no. they adjudicate any other serious crimes. Uh, sexual assault is an incredibly serious crime. You don't want mm -hmm. some weird bureaucrat adjudicating this on a preponderance of evidence basis, which basically means 51 percent of, you know, your kind of, you know, look, the, the stuff that's presented in some of these, I mean, you can, Robbie's written about this stuff. Um, I think one of the more interesting ones, and I'm, I've just started it, uh, is in The Atlantic, as Emily Yaffe yeah. has a three-part uh, thing, is the first first of a three-part thing about uh, campus rape policy. And there's a number, a number of people, um, Laura Kipnis has actually tweeted about this, who's a very sort of left-wing uh, woman, uh, Jim Sirowicki, who I work with, actually, used to work at The New Yorker, uh, now at uh, now working on the Vice News Tonight show. Hmm. Uh, tweeted, I didn't know that. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And he uh, tweeted uh, <laughs> this, that he said that uh, Emily Yoffe's devastating Atlantic piece and Laura Kipnis's book make clear that we need to rethink how Title IX enforcement works on campus. Hmm. I would never think that even come close to calling Jim uh, Zerwicki a, uh, somebody of the right in any way or, or a Trump uh, sympathizer in any way. But obviously a rape apologist. Yeah, I mean, this yeah. is the thing, is that is that the, the way we talk about this stuff these days, Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, if, if you have disagreements with Black Lives Matter as not a, not as a movement, I mean, even if you have it as a movement, but as as like an institution, you know, it's a leaderless movement, et cetera. But there are people that, you know, have taken the mantle and they go and visit Maduro's Venezuela. I mean, or they celebrate Asada Shakur. And if this I am uncomfortable saying anything about it because I don't want the immediate backlash of like, you don't support uh, police, people not being shot by the police. Or in this case is that you don't, you, what are you, you're a rape apologist, you don't believe in X, Y, and Z. No, it's, but you know, you can't be on the side, I mean, a broken clock with the Trump administration, you can't be on the side of the Trump administration for anything ever, because if you do, you know, you're going to be, I mean, look, this is, a, I think, probably, from what I've seen, a sensible policy. The mm -hmm. Dear Colleague letter, which uh, the uh, Department of Education uh, uh, published in 2011, yeah. right? yep. um, is something that basically undercuts due process. That's, that's it. Pretty straightforward. Right. And that should be pulled back. Because we have gone into this sort of mania about 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 these kinds of issues these days, people are very reluctant to to even see good sense. Yeah. I mean, this is a very sensible thing. If you look, the Washington Post, I think it was um, on the uh, Volux blog. Um, I think it was Casey Johnson who wrote a long thing about the Dear Colleague letter and and from a legal perspective, what is wrong with it. And it's kind of bulletproof. I mean, it's like, that's just bad. That's a bad deal. If you read what happened, uh, you know, the most famous of these cases, I would say, was probably the Emma Sulkowitz case, uh, the Mattress Girl case at Columbia. Uh, Columbia, yeah. And it doesn't, I don't, you know, I don't know what happened. And nobody knows what happened. But that's not really what concerns me. If you look at how this stuff, you know, played out, and even the reporting on it, I mean, it took Kathy Young to actually report Paul Nuskasser's side of the story. Um, he was not, not talk, nobody talked to him. He was just this bad guy who did something bad. Did he? I have no idea. I really don't know. Is there a lot of doubt? Absolutely. And there's a lot of evidence that would make you go, well, well could, go, could have gone either way. But that's what, it doesn't matter if it's sexual assault or anything else. I mean, that's how you look at a legal case. You say, well, let this guy have his day in court and let me look at it. And not, I'm not going to prejudge him, et cetera. It's not about whether he was guilty, but if you look at that process at Columbia, if you look at these sort of kangaroo courts, the fact that people aren't allowed to, you know, interrogate the accuser, and I get, I, I do, I'm sympathetic to this idea that, you know, 
it's a really horrifying moment for somebody who has been sexually assaulted to be to be, you know, cross-examined. But that's just the way it goes. I mean, if we don't do that, we're basically, you know, confining all of these people to to, you know, a life outside of the, you know, outside of society because you'll never get a job again. And as is often pointed out, it's not even being convicted. It's not even being being sanctioned. It's being accused. And a lot of people get kicked out. They get blackballed Mm -hmm. just by being accused. And my reaction to that is we should probably tighten the standards uh, by which we oversee, govern, you know, adjudicate, prosecute these things, because they're a bit flabby. And I think that, you know, it's the whole, it was the whole, um, the whole law school, right? They, almost everybody in the law school at Harvard, Harvard, you know Harvard Law. Yeah. Signed this letter saying, you know, we're really screwing people over here and due process mm-hmm. on campus. And they're not people to, to, to dismiss. I, I mean, you can't dismiss them as Eric Prince's brother. There've been sister. A, a bunch of people who have been uh, cleared, uh, not, not just like found not guilty, right. but affirmatively cleared by mm-hmm. uh, uh, police departments or, or the law and by the judi- courts, yeah. court system. Like they didn't do it kind mm-hmm. of thing, um, who've nonetheless been kicked out uh, of their universities and they, they've gone back and sued their universities and got money um, because yeah. what happened to them yeah. is unjust. Um, that's it, it leads to individual cases of of, uh, of injustice and I don't know. That used, that used to excite people more. Individual cases. The, of yeah. I mean, it, there was a, um, a documentary that that uh, came out in theaters and then it was picked up by CNN and I think probably was garlanded with all sorts of awards called The Hunting Ground, hmm. which is a bit of an aggressive didn't, name. Didn't quite I, get all the awards and partly because of uh, the work of Robbie Suave and other people uh, talking about. Yeah. What, uh, em, em, Emily Offey at Slate uh, did did this too. But I mean, that, they, they picked a, a, a series of cases. Mm-hmm. Um, to prove, to prove, to demonstrate that the campus is a hunting ground. Young women are being hunted by, by, by it's sexual a, predators. It's amazing that anyone continues to go to these schools, if that's I the mean, uh, I mean, if you're a parent and you, see, and you see this, it, it should uh, terrify you. Um, and that's what it's designed to do. Uh-huh. And the cases that they, that they um, bring forward in this, in this film, a lot of them are questionable. A lot of them have holes in it. A lot of them are confusing. And if these cases, the ones that are brought out for this film, that, that you know, is a couple million dollar budget, I'm sure, you know, it's, it makes you wonder yeah. that, you know, and, and, you know, Laura Kipnis's book is really, really good. And about half of it is about a professor at Northwestern who is accused of sexual improprieties. And I saw that case in the New York Times and I read it and I was like, this guy Hey, that's a slam dunk. I mean, that's an open and shut case. And then I read Kipnis's book because mm-hmm. the guy basically left the university and handed over two boxes of files to her and said, have at it and see what I had to go through. And she had at it and she didn't come at it by trying to prove anything, but just really, really laid out in detail how this case unfolded, how he unfairly treated he was. The evidence that made no sense, that was ignored, that was coerced, the people that were that were, you know, anonymous. Uh, the same person who accused this guy also accused Laura Kipnis, by the way, uh, was right. one of the same 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 people, you know. So you realize the madness that has taken hold and nobody in the administration wants to be on the other side of this. Mm-hmm. I mean, good God, it's a terrible position to be in, especially when the campuses are so, such tumult in the campuses and your job is in the balance. Like when I interviewed the Evergreen a uh, college president uh-huh. and he refused to say that he wasn't a white supremacist because 
he was conflating that with uh, white privilege, and he basically didn't want to annoy the students. And he was in such a he was hanging on by a thread, and was like, you know, he was like, well, you know, they they say these things, and I have to respect them. It's like, no, you don't. They're children, and they come here and they pay you, and well, and you don't, you know, you don't have to respect and, them. And they hold him hostage. They um, hold him hostage. So, <laughs> but that that yeah. kind of there's a minor detail. There's a hostage mentality yeah. that 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 supersedes any sort of rational common sense about this stuff. I don't think this is a left position or a right position or whatever. I don't care about these stupid labels anyway. But you know, you see the people that you know are really writing a lot of great stuff about this, and it is people like Laura Kipnis and Emily Offie who are. No, no sense. And even slightly right of center. But they've been I mean, Emily Yaffe has been been brutalized, um, especially on Twitter by a certain coterie of people as a as a rape. Politician. No, there's a, I'm Amy Siskind. And thankfully, I don't know her, uh, her affiliations, uh, but she's been going on a rampage on Twitter saying, yeah, thank thank God for all you white men coming in here and, and uh, telling me all about uh, yeah. about a rape policy, shaking my damn head and like, uh, you know. I'm sorry, Laura Kipnis isn't white. Uh, white, but, white. But, even, <laughs> but even that, even that is like too much of a concession. I, I, I really do feel um, that the the pretense that in order to talk about this issue, and I have encountered this in a number of different circumstances, um, one must in fact have the right genitalia. It's it's the same argument that I make with respect to conversations about race. The notion that personal experience somehow changes the constellation of facts associated with a particular issue, that it has something to do with whether or not the outcome of a particular policy is good or bad, whether or not this is effective is absurd. Personal experience may have something to do with how you view a particular issue, but whether or not the the market is operating, whether or not police are actually killing black people in too great a proportion and whether or not always gets like, there, white it? folk are whether or not women <laughs> on campuses are being raped at, at an extraordinary rate. And these cases are actually being adjudicated in a way that is reasonable and sane and is consistent with principles of due process. I mean, there's a sense in which this is objective. And there's another sense in which it's, it's, it's not. Um, and I, I think it's important to, to, to just establish that people have a, have a right to talk about this. And I don't have to qualify this conversation by saying that everyone in this room um, has a mother or, or a spouse or a girlfriend that they care about, or that two of you have daughters and I going to have one soon. And I don't want there to be a world in which folks are raped. Those qualifications aren't necessary. But I want to. Matt has two daughters. I have one daughter. Yeah. yeah. How come we, well, one no, that you nobody's know having sons? No What's happening? Sons. I, yeah. Well, it's something in the water. Sons are over. Chemtrails. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm happy. But, I mean, Moynihan will tell you, like, you didn't want. You didn't I, want we've, boys. You know, we've talked about this. I, I've, I've embraced this theory. I'm only concerned about uh, men trying to violate my. Uh, Stop it. Dude, dude, you have just, so much time. Yeah. Why are you doing this? Well, it's just I'm stocking up on. Ammunition and stuff now, and it's the first concern that you have, I, as I understand it. I mean, I've talked to my no, no, buying some I've, diapers. My friend, yeah, that my, gets in there. my good friends that I've I went to school. A childbirth that doesn't end in death. The, yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> my one responsibility is to keep her off the pole. That is the job. <laughs> Jesus, that's Christ. the whole job. Wow. Don't screw it up. Keep Just her don't, off the whatever, pole. Whatever you do, and I can't, don't act I can't in the stereotypical way. Think about that's, that. the, that's the most important. Well, I'm doing the stereotypical thing of gaining weight while my wife is yeah. uh, pregnant. I need to stop that. But um, 
I wanted to tackle a related point um, because I think that it, it ladders into a, a number of different things. Um, the DACA action that the Trump administration. That's today, related to your patriarchal um, kind of. Uh, well, it's related prejudices? to the previous conversation okay. that we were just having. There's there's all sorts of non sequiturs, but um, <laughs> DACA, DACA um, is another Obama era era policy. Um, and one says policy in this particular case. I mean, these are this is guidance. It's a it's a rule. It's not a, a law that was passed through Congress. This is essentially the adoption of a rule. The president using his discretionary authority in this particular context, President Obama, to not prioritize cases in which uh, young people who came to this country illegally, but were brought here by their parents have grown up here. They have an ability to apply for something that allows them to stay in this country and kind of sort of normalizes their status. Barack Obama did this when he was perhaps not at his uh, his greatest strength uh, politically. Um, And Congress hadn't done anything about this. And the president said, well, I'm going to do what I can. I can't do this all by myself, but I'm going to do what I can. Um, And DACA was born. There have been questions about the constitutionality of DACA for some time. Um, there were similarly questions about uh, the, the constitutionality of uh, DAPA, right? That's Which Deferred Action for Parents um, November 2014. And that actually has had its wings clipped in uh-huh. the courts. Right. By, yes, exactly. And the Trump administration in modifying these rules or saying that they're going to they're going to do away with these rules cited the fact that there might, in fact, be legal challenges, that there were legal challenges coming and that they didn't think that the rules were defensible. The immediate response to this was outrage. And Matt, I know that you um, recently wrote a piece about this that is in The Washington Post today. Perhaps you could provide a a bit more sort of context and insight uh, based on your own uh, thinking on this issue. uh Obama's first administration, uh, when Democrats controlled uh, uh, Congress in 2009, 2010, they didn't touch immigration reform in in any way. They had an opportunity. Mm -hmm. They spent their um, time and energy on bailout related stuff, stimulus and uh, and health care reform, which is a lot. Jobs uh, created and saved. Uh, But also during that um, first term. In a similar way that Obama spent his first terms setting brand new records of raiding uh, legal medical marijuana shops in states like California, just busting people up right and left, he set new records for deportations. Some of this is apples and oranges, the way that it's measured. I recognize that there's some disputes, but he set new records for deportations uh, in that time while not uh, spending any political capital, really. The effort to start talking about, uh, in a renewed sense, comprehensive immigration reform began after Republicans took over Congress again in 2010, the Tea Party wave. And there were some efforts and those efforts uh, continued throughout after uh, the 2012 election. This move uh, was taken, I think, in June of 2012, sometime in, you know, in the middle of the presidential process. You know, it it allows about 800,000 kids. They don't all have to come here illegally. Some of them could come here legally, but then their visas expire, which is 40 percent of of, uh, or thereabouts of uh, of illegal immigrants generally have that kind of situation. So, eight hundred thousand uh, uh, people, uh, give or take, apply for this. You have to go through this and say, "Hey, look, I haven't been committing crimes. This is where I live. This is my life situation," and these types of things. And one of the uh, insidious parts of the way that Trump did this is that the Department of Homeland Security, in its guidance that released this week on this, said, "Yeah, we'll we're 
we're open to using that information against them, um, right? So uh, in deportation proceedings. So mm -hmm. they like say, here we are. Like, great, thanks. Thanks for the map. Uh -huh. <laughs> we're coming at you. Um, so uh, Obama did this. I remember being at the 2012 Democratic Convention and just nails on chalkboard. As someone who uh, I think that uh, our illegal immigration uh, problem is, I, I think about it the same way that Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush did in 1980 in their famous debate, which is that it's a problem. When you have that many people living outside the law, you have a problem of prohibition and not criminality. Uh, you have people who want to live. And in fact, uh, statistically, they commit fewer crimes and all this kind of stuff. They want to live legally here. They consider themselves American. So you, you should uh, allow more people to come here legally and you will have less of a of a uh, illegal immigration. So I was happy to see a deprioritization of kids in the uh, you know legal deportation systems because the feds only have so many cops and I don't think we should deport 11 million people. Um, however, there you felt the political cynicism of the move, which is that hey, we I got, I'm running for re-election here. I need I need all Latinos to vote for me and uh, so let's have a speech after speech talking about our dreamers. Hmm. And dreamers of course comes from the Dream Act which is actually a bipartisan act co-sponsored by John McCain back in the day that failed during George W. Bush's uh, uh, era. But suddenly you had this really soft focus, you know, these dreamers and we're on the side of the dreamers and the bad guys are uh, against the dreamers. Uh -huh. So all of this kind of linguistic uh, bullshittery uh, coming with this. And also you're talking about how you're on the side of the dreamers after spending the previous, you know, 36 plus months just busting up families right and left. All that said, so Obama does this, claims that it's not amnesty, even though that's exactly what it is. You're giving someone immunity from being uh, deported. Um, you're giving them relief from uh, sanction. That's what amnesty means. It could be conditional, but it's still uh, amnesty. He is, tried is the claim that it's not amnesty primarily uh, a function of him trying to sort of make this palatable to people yes. or or acknowledging that there are sort of limits to his ability to do things on his own. It's to make it palatable to people okay. when he uh, uh, in uh, uh, in 2012, when he said this, he's like, you know, let me be clear. This is not amnesty. This is a temporary stopgap measure. Uh, this, he even said this is not immunity. Like, right. it, it's, that's, it's definitionally immunity. And this then is, in 24 this, is, this is amnesty with really ugly bureaucratic gears. <laughs> like you are reapplying for this thing every two years for forever. There's some question about your status, I mean, but the government isn't, in fact, doing anything to you apart from making you comply with some bureaucratic stuff. Right. I mean, when we say when there's a tax amnesty, for example, mm -hmm. you have to pay a fine. So like it's conditional. It is. It's right. amnesty, but it's conditional. That's a category of it. In 2014, <clears throat> when the president decided to expand this or try to expand this to include all the families of those kids that he had protected, um, he made the incredible uh, claim that uh, that this is not amnesty. Amnesty actually is the status quo where we have 11 million illegal immigrants uh, living here. So that's what amnesty really is. So I'm ending amnesty by giving um, amnesty to all these people. It's part of the reason why uh, people get so sick of, regardless of where they are, they are in the position of immigration, it's an emotional and complicated issue. Everyone bullshits about it. Ben Carson says we can seal the border, all of them. Um, that's just bullshit. Uh, Donald Trump thinks that we can keep out drugs. That's bullshit. Uh, Dreamers is as... Uh, as a, uh, you know, elevating a certain class of people to be even more special than other people. That's just a way to try to get boil it down to an emotional argument. So what Trump did and the interesting pivot on all of this is that 
Uh, he's been campaigning against this. His uh, his uh, base wants this. Jeff Sessions has been living for this. He gave Jeff Sessions the cookie of being able to announce this um, because uh, uh, could, uh, restri- uh, immigration restrictionists think that this is uh, uh, kind of an anchor babies situation in which uh, you're going to you're going to encourage people to come here um, and uh, and uh, and, uh, and uh, have more illegal Im- immigrants. Uh, there, but then Trump almost immediately pivots and says, "We're going to fix DACA in the next six months. Let's work with Congress. Let's work with Na- Nancy Pelosi." Mm-hmm. He even uh, reportedly like writes out a tweet to current DACA recipients, those eight hundred thousand people, like, "I'm not going to touch you for the next six months." Right. And he does that at the behest of Nancy Pelosi. So, Acor- he, according to her, according yes. to her, uh, so he's in the middle of potentially uh, completely doing a reversal on this issue, which was. Uh, key to remember that he not only said he was going to deport 11 million illegal immigrants, he also said that he was going to deport legally legal uh, U.S. citizen children of illegal immigrant parents uh, on of, on the uh, on the basis of you, you don't want to break up the family. Mm-hmm. So he was campaigning on deporting 15 million people out of this country, which is nonsense. You just can't do it. You the the, the physicality limitations of it. Sure. But it was clearly part of his coalition, his rise and all this kind of stuff. And one of the many interesting things about his behavior this week is that he's making an incredibly strong signal of that. It is his intention to get Congress to pass this, which from my mind, as someone who is in favor of the policy, is better than having the president do it. Congress should pass this. Congress should pass laws. That's kind of the deal. Mm -hmm. Um, I I don't know exactly where I uh, Ilya Soman at the Vola conspiracy has a pretty good argument that this is all legal, what the Obama originally did. Um, I, I think regardless of the constitutionality of it, it's better to do a big decision uh, through the legislative pro- process in general, because otherwise you're going to sow a lot of of uh, of resentment on the population. And you're just going to make American politics even more a question of who gets to use the presidency to impose their will on anybody for four years and then just sort of switch yeah. teams. I think that's unhealthy. So that's my spiel. Yeah. I mean, there's the there's the political there's the political landscape in which these actions occur. Barack Obama's motivations, the time he pursues it. Um, President uh, President Trump, um, who is perhaps trying to placate his base or whatever other things that might be going on there. The subtext, which I want to get to in a second. Um, But there's also just the reality of the policy. And in this particular case, I, I am generally in favor of making it easier for folks to stay here who are here legally, who aren't committing crimes. And um, The Economist had a, a great uh, piece in this, um, great not only because I agree with it, but because the the argument, I think, is framed in a very interesting, impactful way. The 800 kids that we are talking about in this case are like a high-achieving lot, in quotes, here I'm, I'm reading. Uh, more than 90% of those uh, now o- aged over 25 are employed. They create businesses at twice the rate of the public as a whole. Many have spouses and children who are citizens. They are Americans in every sense, um, in every sense, bar the bureaucratic one, um, which this is, uh, I think this is effectively true. Um, and I would like to see it be possible for them to stay here. I would also like for them to have a sense of permanence and for them to not have to worry that the policy will change arbitrarily. So when the president does, in fact, modify these rules and when he says in the same day amid a storm of criticism, but I don't know why he did it. I don't care. Congress should fix this. I hope they can fix it. He is he has found religion on the issue that is a good thing and it is absolutely objectively good 
for us to find that particular remedy. Um, the, the thing that I've found um, a little disturbing about the way that the narrative around the issue has evolved is not dissimilar from the Betsy DeVos situation and various other things that we've seen. It's the caricature of the policy. It's the assertions about the motivation of the people who are um, who are taking this action, in this particular case, the president, but also his supporters. And I, I characterize it in that way um, because uh, our friend Anthony Fisher has also written about uh, DACA this week. And Fisher, I mean, you tell me if this is a fair characterization. I mean, go I think ahead. go ahead. I think your your piece in the week um, from earlier this week really did kind of frame Donald Trump um, and his supporters as folks in the, the, the title of your article. Trump DACA suspension proves his brand isn't winning. I mean, it's cruelty. It, it seems to suggest that the it's the malevolence that is motivating them to do this, that at, at bottom, there is a sense of that and that there isn't any kind of uh, sort of rational motivation that could persuade someone to want to do this beyond that. And I'm not saying that's narrowly the argument that you make. Uh, I know that you've written things on both sides of this with respect to the sort of Trump administration um, actions here and the Obama administration's previous bad actions on these issues. Um, but I'll, I'll permit you to defend yourself because I don't want to set up a straw man and then <laughs> well, attack it. I mean, if that's if that's the uh, the, the the gist of the attack, then that's uh, easy enough to explain. Uh, the <clears throat> as this this could be one of those situations that you know people like us who write columns run into, where it's like, why didn't you talk about this particular part of the issue? Why didn't you talk about that? legislating via executive order is a bad idea. Well, I agree that that is a bad idea. It's something that, you know, Obama left this issue uh, highly vulnerable by, you know, using his phone and pen and uh, not having it go through Congress. Um, as far as the, you know, as far as the, uh, the motivation to do it, I absolutely believe that Trump's brand involves beating opponents down. And I believe that he I don't I don't buy uh, the suggestion that he's just kicking this to Congress, that only a severe move would make Congress do its job. I, I do think that both he and a great deal of his base are really satisfied by the idea that people are scared, that now the rule of law will finally be respected. And it doesn't matter what promises Obama made. He should have went through Congress. Yeah. And I get I get the argument. Um, I, I'm not sure if I agree with it or not. Uh, what I think is important to acknowledge is that there's always in, a, in opinion pieces like this, perhaps like a bit of like armchair psychology sure. where you have to sit back and analyze these folks and try to imagine yourself in their shoes. And one thing that I think is important is that none of them would actually characterize the action they're taking in that way. And at least in this context have not. And whether or not Donald Trump intended to take a bold action to, to sort of screw things up so that Congress would actually do something about this, whether or not he always intended to ask Congress to take action and formally pass a law to fix this. That's interesting to me, but it's not nearly as interesting as what has actually transpired. And I know your piece came out before Trump actually 
talked about um, the 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 need for Congress to do something yes. here. It was it was when it was clear that yeah. he was about to give a press conference right. to explain the thing. So it could have very well been a thing where he was deporting all of the DACA kids. Yeah. But Camille, what, what, but, but what has transpired is what has that, transpired, I think, is is that is people go- have been removed from protection from deportation at a time when deportation and activities are up. And there's a further announcement this week that there's going to be an increase right now of that deportation activity and a sharing of information of people who volunteer that information totally to qualify him. for this. That is what's that is what we have right now. This is and I think Congress that fixing something. Is yeah, Congress is fixing something. Maybe and let's that's that's right. that that is uh, it's interesting to look at. But the facts on the ground Agreed. are that, and those facts were not announced by Donald Trump talking about Congress's need to do their job. Jeff Sessions. It was yeah. announced by Jeff Sessions, totally, who describes it not just as unconstitutional, but in the same kind of. And Jeff Sessions has been leading immigration restrictionist in Congress for a generation. A mantle since taken over by Tom Cotton. Um, who should be hung up uh, by his ears in the town square and and uh, blown spit wads at his naked torso un, un, until he soils himself, but only for a little while. Okay, uh, I'm, trying, I'm, just, I'm trying to see if one hand's awake. That's, uh, yeah. uh, uh, Camille, if I just may, I'm drop, listening. Drop one more uh, uh, point in there, as please. Far as, as, because Anthony's I, replacing I, me today. I, I, <laughs> He's re- defending I'm himself. You rest. You've, you've had a long trip. Uh, <laughs> the, I've, I've been doing a lot of research uh, for a kind of a long-term piece on the alt-right and uh, alt-light and adjacent parties, and uh, have been s- seeing the argument, uh, and it kind of is. It gross in a way that uh, I, I forgot which Obama press secretary it was, but when he droned uh, an American citizen's son, I'm sure you remember that case, uh-huh. he basically made the argument that oh, he should have chosen better parents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the argument I'm seeing right now. And I'm not saying Trump said this, I'm not right. saying Jeff Sessions said this, but I'm yeah. saying prominent people, not just, you know, Reddit trolls, but, you know, people who are, you know, alt-light YouTubers are making this argument. I mean, Ann Coulter, who's, who's, uh, Arguments uh, have been uh, 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 she was helped write draft uh, Trump's original white paper on immigration. Um, you know, she has been making the consistent argument in the public square that immigrants are not good people. They're sending us their bad people. She made that argument against uh, Nikki Haley as if Nikki Haley was an immigrant. Uh, and this is a cons- Breitbart's headline on this this week totally. on DACA was like, uh, so 2,139 uh uh, real and also accused criminals are now no longer going to be protected. The inference is yeah. that finally we're doing something about this criminal element. And that is a uh, an inaccurate collectivist judgment about a population that you see constantly among the people who support this policy. I think that's I think that's mostly fair. I would say that part of the sort of criminal rhetoric around this is we are a nation of laws and they are in fact lawbreakers. They are criminals because they're here illegally. By definition, they are illegal immigrants and it's appropriate to use that language for that reason. That is them talking. Um, it is The number was, is, was referred to actual yeah, crimes committed well, in, this, it, in this case. It's, it's also just, it's deliberately pr- provocative rhetoric. It is careless rhetoric and it's not good. These, are, these people are making the worst possible argument argument for it. I'm not sure Donald Trump understands the best possible argument for it. I think all of that context is totally fair. Um, And the sloppiness of what the administration is doing um, with respect to this is totally fair to point out and to highlight. The one thing that I worry about is that in not acknowledging the, the fact that some of the things that they are doing with respect to this now are useful and the reality that doing things in a sloppy way, whether it's things that they care about um, or policies that they are skeptical of that they're rescinding, 
is pretty much the signature of the Trump administration when he actually went about instituting what would have been his Muslim ban had he actually done one. Um, one could say that what he did is, but in either case, the travel restrictions, it was a total mess. This was an, an important thing to him that he wanted to get right and do for his base. And he screwed it up so profoundly by having what Steve Bannon drafted documents for this. They had to get a mulligan. So I, what, I'm, what I'm suggesting here is that having malevolence stand in where rank incompetence is fully capable and persuasive explanation. I don't know that we have to choose. I don't think and you I have don't, to choose. And I, I, and I don't know. Exclusive. Yeah. And I, they're not mutually exclusive. But it's also the case that Trump supporters, by and large, and this is a position I find myself in a lot. I want to appeal to them. I want to persuade them that they are wrong about various things. And I find it very difficult to do it from a position of what's motivating them is malevolence. I don't know that talk in talking to most of them, they would actually describe themselves in, in that way, even if they're unsophisticated in the way that they talk about um, particular policies. Moynihan, did you have anything before we punch out of this? Uh, no. Um, yeah, the, one, the only thing that, that, I mean, all of this is deeply troubling and upsetting in a thousand different ways. And this administration has been, you know, one failure after another. And they're trying to score some cheap points and get some cheap victory here. But I spent the week in D.C. talking to people about this and talking to people about what the Trump administration has achieved. And because of the noise of the tweets and because of the internecine battles and the Bannon being ejected and the, even before the administration began, Flynn being objected, the, mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. Russia investigation, et cetera, people tend to not pay attention to the fact that nothing is being done. And what we all thought, not we all thought, I actually didn't think this, but a number of people who came to me right after uh, the election and said, I'm so terrified. I'm so mm -hmm, terrified mm -hmm. by Donald Trump. And I said, oh, what are you terrified about? Well, you know, the Republicans control both houses of Congress. They control uh, the executive. They will have a Supreme Court pick, if not two. They are going to drive a freight train through uh, this country, and they're going to just rearrange everything. And I, I was very skeptical of that. And if you notice, uh, nothing has happened. And we start seeing these sort of cheap ploys like the DACA business. Um, which isn't very sensible. I mean, I, it's an incredible thing is if you're one of these uh, people who is uh, now subject to deportation or will be subject to deportation. My initial argument wouldn't be a policy argument if, if I were that person. It's like, you know, you you failed. I'm 30 years old, whatever mm -hmm. it might be. You allowed me to go to school. You allowed me to live here. You, you didn't arrest me when I got pulled over for mm -hmm. and deport me for a speeding ticket. You can't go back on this now. That's what I would think in the most basic level and the most sort of non-political, non-ideological level is that it, to, when you talk to most people about this stuff, they are just baffled by it. It's like you, there's no take backs. You allowed people to live in the country illegally and use services and pay taxes to as they pay taxes in indirect ways. Um, and go to school. And then all of a sudden, for some cheap political ploy, you're going to tell them they have to go, quote unquote, home, which is where they live right now. Yeah. I just think it's a, it's a, it's, it's bad policy. And it's, and I think uh, there's nothing I can add that, that, that Matt didn't, uh, didn't say uh, no, quite well. You just, so. you just added a lot. I think that's, I think that's fair. One qualification is not a quibble. Maybe it's a quibble, but I think a refinement, which I know you'd agree with anyways, um, that 
in doing nothing, they have managed to arrest a lot more people. The only reason they're not deporting even more people is because they've managed to jam up the courts. They can't actually keep pace with the rate at which the Trump administration has been able to corral folks that they would like to deport. Um, and on a foreign policy, on the foreign policy front, they've they've done some things as well and are planning to do even more. Um, there are other things that they've done from a deregulatory standpoint. I'm, I'm less concerned about some of those things and even pleased with it. But those are my personal preferences. But I said earlier that we might talk about the Pelosi stuff. I, maybe we can skip that. I'm a little bored by it. I, I think it's interesting that that Trump himself is making some deals with the Democrats. This is predictable and not entirely surprising because he's a populist and there are plenty of places where they'll be able to find alignment. It's maybe the first of many things. Uh, the debt ceiling stuff is worth talking about. I mean, 30 seconds of the debt ceiling, the Republicans waved it out of existence as soon as they took over the Senate um, in 2014. Fair. Uh, Mitch McConnell said no more shutdowns of governments. Paul Ryan said absolutely right. No more brinksmanship. We're going to play. It's now that we have power, we're going to stop being pains in the asses of stuff now that we're responsible for stuff. So for them, for anyone to be surprised and even act hurt and shocked that suddenly we're going to extend the debt ceiling again, this time we're going to have Democrats say we want to do it. Um, is ridiculous. They waved it out of existence until now. We have not had a debt ceiling since 2014 because Republicans made that choice. So Trump doing it with Schumer and Pelosi just puts a different date on it. Um, and uh, and so, yeah, they're I'm, I'm not quite licking up their delicious tears, but I'm a little bit licking up their delicious tears. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of the questions are swirling around uh, how he could betray Republicans and what they'll do. Uh, who knows? We'll find out later. Really, I'm just preserving some space at the tail end of this conversation um, so that I can uh, throw some shade uh, at uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, the man who every every few months, it seems, emerges from the, the fog, Bagger Vance-like. Um, he's the Reset. bagger, the bagger Vance, the bagger Vance of public intellectuals um, offering oh. all sorts of silly, pedantic things that should be masterful insights um, in these. Like, I would, I would replace pedantic with pedestrian. Pedestrian is good. Yeah. Yeah. More like it. Um, it pedestrian, <laughs> pedestrian, recycled, borrowed. Um, you may think I'm being um, overly malicious. I don't think so. I, I, I always try to give the best version of someone's argument. His thing is really long, and I think it deserves a fuller treatment. I'm just going to be callous and dismissive and nasty here. The argument he makes is the same one he makes all of the time. America is exceptional and it's evil. And whiteness in particular is the ultimate evil, the original sin of the country. And that everything that is happening now, all of the, the disparate outcomes that exist are a consequence of slavery. The The title of his article uh, in this case is The First White President, um, I believe, which is uh, an allusion to Donald Trump, actually, not George Washington. But it's because it's a gimmick. There's so much that I want to address. The attacks on progressives in the piece, he offers all sorts of old um, arguments that we've all seen before, the list of nasty things that Donald Trump has said, the fact that Donald Trump had the majority of white voters. Um, the only person who overwhelmingly gets anything is the person who gets the black vote uh, in any election, since they get about 93 percent of it uh, because they're all overrepresented uh, in the Democratic Party. Um, there's all sorts of things offered up as evidence for or just claims that are made absent evidence completely. Um, I don't find most of the work all that illuminating. And I find it a bit 
surprising and constantly frustrating that the guy who shows up every once in a while and says, you know, everyone has that one perfect swing inside them. You just got to find it. Like this is the, the, he's a genius. Are you kidding me? I don't even think the wordsmithing is that damn clever. It's just not that great. It's not at all. But <laughs> I, I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm just an asshole. The truth is, I, I really would like to talk to him about this because I think his arguments are bad and that the principal weapon that he deploys, apart from recycling his own work, is giving a careful, highly selective rendering of history, beginning the narrative of white peoples and black peoples in the United States with the specific deprivations associated with slavery and building out a, a sequence of deprivations and a sequence of wrongs and ills and finding anecdotal evidence to support his conviction, his belief that race is the fundamental animating force of all injustice in the United States of America. And that's not really an exaggeration. For him, the opioid ep epidemic, the fact that we treat it differently um, in terms of policy, that more people today are talking about treatment as the principal thing that they're interested in versus um, incarceration is primarily because the opioid epidemic is impacting white people and not black people. That's possible, right? Maybe. It's also possible that the reason we treat the opioid epidemic differently today versus 30 years ago in the 1980s with the crack versus powder cocaine epidemic is because maybe collectively we've learned something about crack versus powder cocaine. Maybe we talk about drug drugs and addiction a bit differently. And rather than having a substance focused and centered view of drugs and addiction, we actually have a, 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 a disease model of addiction that is very prevalent that a lot of people get, that the prevalence of drug courts, as misguided as I believe they are, is actually just like uh, marijuana decriminalization, which is increasingly popular in this country, part of a change, a cultural shift that has something to do with the way people around the world, not just in the United States, actually relate to drugs and think about drug policy. Though we still, there's still an uh, interdiction prohibition model that's uh, being uh, uh, proposed with the opioid stuff. Let's like, uh -huh. the, sure. The wall is going to. Prevent yeah, yeah. And I'm not, not and I'm not even saying stuff. these are, these are not, these aren't, these all are of the insights parts. aren't good. They're not essential. Good. I mean, the, the, is, the, the real issue is that he makes it about race every single time because that is, that is his blind spot. It's the sole insight that he has, and it's borrowed, and it's hackish, and it's lame. I mean, isn't uh, you guys read him closely, and I just don't because I can't read long things. Um, <laughs> but uh, I see those little excerpts that people put in blue on Twitter, and I don't know how to do that, by the mm, way. Yeah. Will you guys show me how to do that one of these days? I will show you. Um, uh, it the it, it's it's about black bodies. It's about phrases that are that are evoc. It's about adjectives. Mm -hmm. He's a writer that I don't I don't recall someone saying, "Wow, that argument that he made that convinced me that persuaded me of this line of thinking." I don't I don't recall anyone ever saying that. It's more like I had an emotion. I fist pumped at my desk while I was reading this. Yeah, you, you know, know this, you applauded loudly this at is, work, disturbing you know, everyone who this is just you. the most beautiful, great thing. But it, it, I think it's a reaction to adjectives. Uh, much more than it is, uh, uh, you know, a reaction to an argument. But I mean, is yeah. that is that miss? Uh... No, I mean, I, I think I've said this before on the show a very long time ago. But it's he. This is a guy who writes. Well, the reason I can't stand reading his stuff is not that I. Uh, disagree with him. I never get that far to disagree with him. It's just you're that, jealous of his celebrity. No, it's 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 just this. <laughs> if you're a profound writer, right, you don't write with a sense of profundity. 
Right? <laughs> you don't set out saying, I'm going to write a profound thing. It just, it happens that way. Right. I get the sense when I read him is that he's trying to make every sentence this, uh, you know, little Bartlett's uh, quotation that everyone can can tweet and stroke their chin and say, oh, God, that man is such a stylist. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's people. It's the writing version of people who say I'm acting. You know, it's like, <laughs> you know, yeah, well, just to be subtle about it. I'm be, writing over here. Yeah. It's, it's that's my, that's my, that's kind of hip hop, though. It's my that's what it that's. It usually feels it feels like I'm, I'm reading like I'm reading a rapper and and i i al- almost want to respond man you ain't a rapper you an actor which is like a, a, a traditional diss that one might find in in hip-hop circles well did you see uh he's tweeting thank yous to everyone who read the initial drafts and and some of these people are tv hosts you know, <laughs> some of these people are the kind of people that are building the legend of ta-nehisi coats well i mean yes you give them special treatment yeah. and your kingdom expands it is insufficient to state the obvious of Donald Trump, that he is a white man who would not be president were it not for this fact, period. With one immediate exception, Trump's predecessors made their way to high office through the passive power of whiteness. That bloody heirloom, which cannot ensure mastery of all events, but can conjure a tidal wind for most of them. The passive power of whiteness. Are they talking? They're talking about. <laughs> it's just the deep sigh is not is not fake. It's it's for real. Um, it's because there's so much to tangle with. And and even if this bit of like absurd hyperbole were true, which it most certainly isn't, um, that's not the principal thing that has elevated them to to high office. It's it's rather. It, it seems like an obvious point, but it's worth noting that most of the people who have run for office who were white didn't manage to win. That if Donald Trump manages to win, the explanation that he primarily wins because of his whiteness, it seems a little paltry. I mean, it sure as hell seems paltry enough that it shouldn't be the main thrust of your piece. And if you're going to make it so, your evidence has got to be better than this I think shit you gotta, show. I mean, the, there's a... There's an argument to be made, and this might segue into uh, into my uh, uh, somebody that wrote this for the week, for this week. Donald Trump ran and campaigned differently in a more negatively collectivist way towards populations, and it was part of his campaign, a central part of it, uh, I believe, in a way that it's important to acknowledge how that is different than other people. It, if you conjure up this passive power of whiteness, and first, first of all, stop t- talking about my genitals, but um, <laughs> but I mean, you conjure up like this magic of uh, of this thing that floats in the air that that overwhelms everything. I mean, it, it plays into all kinds of senses of conspiracy of powerlessness and all this kind of stuff. Um, but you're also undifferentiating it. Mm-hmm. Like Jimmy Carter. It's all the same. Was it, that was that's, the that's, passive power the of white. Was that what we were doing with, yeah. with electing Jimmy Carter? Um, maybe it was, but like Jimmy Carter's different and he campaigned and won in a different way than Donald Trump is. And, and <laughs> you should be able to recognize that because that's going to help if, if you're at all interested in persuasive argument, and I'm not convinced that any of this is about that. I think it's about kind of uh, ratifying uh, 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 and, and, uh, and you know, putting poetry on a belief and 
and uh, and the the tribe who believes in those things more than actually persuading somebody. But if you want to like try to figure out your own brain how shit works and what's different and what's happening now as opposed to what was happening then, you got to be able to come up with something that's a little bit different than the passive power of whiteness that connects Jimmy Carter and Donald. They're differentiators. Get in those and figure out what those are, why they're growing if they indeed are. And I think they are. And that's kind of interesting. That's going to get me to a some idiot wrote this because we can't stay here forever. It's the morning. We are productive people, especially <laughs> my obligations. Yeah. Yeah. So I was on. <laughs> I'm not so. I'm not so good in the morning. I don't know if you've noticed this. <laughs> uh, I don't I, know. Do I want those kids to be deported? I don't even remember. <laughs> you said you said yes, totally. I did, I did. but yeah. primarily because they're brown. Which I I, if, I I said that's a little racist. You said if, I don't know. If I say that I want them to be deported, can I go back to sleep? <laughs> yes. I'll just take the other position forever in, for, in Trump's yeah. America. So yeah. I, I was on the Labor Day edition of uh, All In with uh, Chris. Hayes. And uh, we're talking about Trump's first, uh, uh, you know, uh, Trump's weird summer, uh, ultimately. And I called back to point out something I've talked to on the show about his speech in uh, Poland, where he was talking about how, um, you know, uh, we will not let the, the West be overrun. We're going to defend the West against impending doom and, and these kind of things. And I made the point um, that there's something interesting in his narrow definition of what it means to be the West in, in his sense of insecurity and apocalypticism about about uh, um, of uh, of that and that this worldview, which is kind of kind of new to be sitting in the White House, uh, a recent vintage, is worth thinking about and also helps, I think, uh, as uh, we talked about before, explain um, or uh, shed some insight on a broader population of people that would include the protesters in Charlottesville, mm -hmm. but also include people who hate the protesters in Charlottesville, but who are also kind of believe that they are fighting um, the, you know, uh, for in, in definition of uh, uh, defense of the West and all this kind of stuff. So as making this argument, I said, uh, I was uh, hasten to point out, I am not saying here that Donald Trump is a racist or a white supremacist because mm -hmm. I felt like it was necessary to point that out. Um, so Andy Kindler, who is some kind of hate bear, a hate nerd bear on Twitter, um, quotes me, I'm not saying Trump is a racist or white supremacist. Matt Welch on All In With Chris. Why not? Afraid to hurt a racist's feeling? Um and so I responded, as I stupidly do, although increasingly am not anymore, um, actually explaining in good faith my position, uh, which was that th that's actually not what I was talking about. And uh, I'm, I'm generally reluctant to call someone this term in public. If I if I uh, do, I want to more I'll, that will be the focus of the argument. But actually, the focus of my argument is about a broader tendency. And I um, and I and I want to. Uh, both sort of refute that tendency and uh, alight people's awareness of it, because, you know, I, I think it's more interesting the people who consider themselves anti-racists, uh, their worldviews that feed into uh, mm -hmm, oh, mm -hmm. they're getting to places. So uh, then his response uh, comes. This is a joke, right? Reason magazine finds it reasonable to refuse to identify racists as racist. How brave. And then this is like one of a thousand uh, different uh, tweets that he sent on, on to me. First of all, it's not Reason magazine. It's just me on a show. But he did the reason, reason thing. The, the, yeah, that old classic, like for a magazine called Reason. Drink. Yeah. Uh, uh, but it's exactly precisely missing the point. If you want to 
uh, I think there is an argument to be made that Donald Trump and some of core of Trumpism uh, is racist. There's an argument to be made. And if I want to make that argument, I will make that argument. But I'm super reluctant to get to that conclusion and to get to that, to want to get to that conclusion before anything else is like advertising. I want to persuade nobody, especially those people who agree with him and agree with racists Mm -hmm. on something who I'm trying to say, hey, look, maybe don't do that because of this over here. You're you're uh, eliminating the possibilities both of your own personal understanding and also of being persuasive. And it's also not what I was talking about at that moment to walk around demanding that everybody agree with your conclusion mm-hmm. or else you are the problem is part of the fucking problem which which i mean it's in this particular context you didn't even say that he's not he's i don't know and that's because not what i'm saying right now exactly i'm, I'm talking not, about something else i am not criticizing anyone for concluding that donald trump is a racist if that's your conclusion yeah. make a good argument i'm willing to hear it but don't force me to say that as the conclusion when i'm talking about something else and i think there is something and we've talked about a lot here mm-hmm. like we are way too promiscuous with coming to of using the R word against people constantly. It's very, very difficult to prove. Yeah, I, I, I did end up weighing into to this particular uh, exchange as well. Um, and it wasn't it was two responses in that he got to the uh, Hitler analogies. Um, and the last one of the last things he said to me was, I respectfully would like to push back on Hitler's roundup of the Jews campaign. It seems a little mean. No offense. I suggested that using Nazi analogies is offensive, crude, dishonest, and reductionist. Um, And I'm just realizing that he sent me a response, and his response is that my writing sucks, which Mm. in fact it may. I certainly can't spell. Um, But I think he is unaware of the fact that those words all mean different things, and I strung them together because it is actually all of those fucking things. It's offensive to reduce the suffering of Jews in the Holocaust to a trope that you think is appropriate to deploy in the context of talking about not even necessarily Donald Trump, but Donald Trump and anyone who disagrees with you on whether or not he's racist or isn't willing to go as far as you in stressing the specific point of his racism at every available opportunity. That is crude. It's fucking offensive and it's reductionist. These aren't all words for garbage. It is garbage, but it's also those things, you stupid moron. There you go. There you go. It's most 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 aggressive finish in, in history. Yeah, I think that Michael. You know, I'm, no, I don't. I don't. I'm just grumpy today. This I'm morning grumpy listening. today. Coffee and Adderall. Um, yeah. I had coffee and I took uh, some Adderall. As, as did I. <laughs> How about? Yeah, you're flying. I'm just like. How about coffee and like leftover painkillers? Well, I, trust me. I mean, whatever take, you need. I'll get the Xanax tonight and then the Adderall in the morning. Balance it out. And it's just what this just became a future album. Xanax and Valium. Where where are you with that? I prefer Xanax because it's, 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 you know, it's chiller. Valium is like fun. Okay. Yeah. Xanax is just like, you can survive. I mean, I, could, you, I couldn't go to work on. That's the problem. See, I. On I, Valium. I mean, I don't go to work in Xanax, but I know people that do. They, yeah. that, that, you know, they just have anxieties or something and they the, take it. But you can't Cheech take Valium. Chong podcast here. Yeah. Well, well this yeah. is. This you is, get to a certain age. It's all about <laughs> managing the pain, Camille. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Which is, is why those opioids are so less, important. Less uh, Cheech and Chong and more Hunter S. Thompson's suitcase full of narcotics in the back <laughs> of the, the car. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we're going to get out of here. Um, I, I feel like we did some good and honest work, and I at least purged some of my demons. Um, You'll never, ne- never do enough. Not all of them. That's true. Um, but at any rate, 
I think we're done here. I think we're done here. Let's right. do it. Bye. Bye. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse.